The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So um, let's open it up again for any kinds of uh, questions, um, reports, or comments that you might have. Uh, feel free. I've um, meditated for a little while, uh, and I've been a breath counter, and until recent, about the last year or so, I've started relaxing that. After reading your article, that seems to be kind of a suppressive technique to shut down some of the, or at least push out some of the thoughts that might arise. Um, any comments on that? Okay. Um, so breath counting... Um, is it a suppressive technique? Um, so by something that, by suppressive, we would mean that there is an active intention to stop something from happening, uh, an active intention, as opposed to some other possibilities, like maybe something might just stop of its own spontaneously. Now, uh, ordinarily, within the context of mindfulness practice, uh, one does not intentionally stop something from happening. However, that is not to say that there's some rule in the cosmos that it's wrong to do that and you should never do that. Um, different things work for different people at different times. There are uh, techniques, I don't know if you'd exactly call it suppression, but um, there is in Tibet among the uh, approximately 10 to the 9 techniques known to that culture. <laughs> That's 1 billion, okay, obviously. I'm, I'm just making a point here, okay. One technique out of a gazillion techniques um, that are known in the upaya <laughs> Uh, skillful means package of that culture. There is a technique, I don't know if you'd call it suppression of thought, but it's a sort of suppression of thought. Um, <clears throat> you're supposed to uh, uh, imagine that uh, whenever a thought comes up, um, <clears throat> you chop off its head as soon as it arises. Yeah, it's really violent, and you do it with, uh, by making a mantra. Uh, not a mantra, by making a sound that would, like, intimidate the thought, okay? Uh, and the sound is, pet, 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 okay? Now you're, you're lopping off its head, and you're like, ah, okay? However, I did that technique, and it helped in some ways, okay? Now, one might say that's a suppressive technique. Um, <laughs> however, it might work. So it's not like, oh, we, you know, there's something fu fundamentally wrong for all people at all times and all places to suppress thought, okay? And in fact, if you're dealing with certain negative thoughts, um, maybe that's the best you can do, okay? Um, so... First, let's say, hey, you know, there might be occasions where it's okay to suppress thought. However, 
a breath counting technique, I would not say is per se a suppression of the thoughts. So what is a breath counting technique? Well, um, now we get down to my favorite topic, which is there's is to make finer and finer and more and more careful distinctions. In fact, there's a number of ways of going about a breath-counting technique. You could say that um, your main object is the physical sensation, um, and you're just using the count to sort of, in the background, help you keep track of things. In that case, it's actually not terribly different from what we've been doing here so far. However, a person might say, well, actually, I'm going to focus on two things. I'm going to focus on the sensation of the breathing, and I'm going to also listen carefully to the count in talk space. In that case, now the count has become a kind of numeric mantra. And you are your your object is rather large. It has a somatic component and an auditory component. Now I used to, for myself, do breath practice where I would try to listen to the mantra of the numbers, really hear them, like clearly in talk space. I would focus on the body and I would try to visualize the numbers in my mental talk space. I mean, in my mental image space. And I was trying to engage all three fundamental modalities, visual, auditory, and somatic. Now, that's done in Vajrayana practice, not with the breath, but with a lot of things. Uh, In fact, actually, they do. That's right. There's a mantra, there's a visualization, then there's the breath. So um, that could be a breath-counting practice. So it sort of uh, depends on uh, all of these sort of come under that category, but none, none of them are necessarily, quote, suppressive. And sort of this was everything I just said so far as a sort of preamble to the main point, which is selectively attending to X does not imply that you're in any way suppressing Y and Z. Okay? So if you selectively attend to a mantra, you're Uh, and give permission for other mental talk to just be there. You're not suppressing that mental talk. You're selectively attending to something. So um, from that perspective, it's not necessarily a suppressive practice. Um, So the question, uh, as a general principle, personally, even though I did that Tibetan chop-off-the-head thing, that's not my style to, in general, encourage someone to suppress anything because equanimity is sort of the non-suppression of things. But, when people, but people frequently come to me and are worried, am I suppressing? Either because the phenomenon stops happening or, I don't know, they're just worried. So I always ask a, a standard question, well, are you intentionally trying to make Y and Z stop when you selectively attend to X. If they say yes, then actually that is suppression. They're intentionally trying to do it. If they say no, it just stops of its own, or no, I'm not trying to do that, then that's not suppression. It's, it's selective attention. 
So I would say that's maybe a, a useful a, a useful distinction for you. In general, whatever works. <laughs> uh, is, <laughs> I I do have um, I have my official definition, which you can quote me on, uh, <clears throat> on the best way to meditate. Uh, <laughs> the best way to meditate is the way that works. <laughs> And different things are going to work for different people at different times. Now, the next obvious question is, well, what do you mean by works? And I, uh, what I mean by that is not so much a concern with regards to what your experience is when you're on the cushion, um, but more my criterion for, or criteria for our practice is working, is to look at the impact on daily life. People typically look at their experience, their cushion experience, to say, oh, this technique is working, this technique isn't working. But for me, I encourage people not to be so concerned with that, but look at daily life. Um, Have you noticed one or a combination of the following five? A reduction of suffering, while you're bopping around in the world, physical and or emotional, an elevation of fulfillment, greater understanding of yourself, maybe at the psychological level, but maybe at more general, structural, or even spiritual level, better self-understanding. Have there been positive behavior changes in the objective world? Um, Is there arising a spontaneous spirit of love and service? If you can answer a confident yes to even one of those, any one or combination, and and you can ascribe it to your practice, then the practice is, quote, working. So that's how I would respond to that. Uh, In the article, you you touched on scientific measurement of the effect of um, meditation, didn't you? I, I, pro- yeah. I probably yeah, mentioned that, yes. And then you're talking about uh, uh, looking at ways of seeing is meditation working. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, motivation. Uh, are you saying people should meditate in order to get something? Or what kind of thing? Uh, when I was in Japan, the, the teacher there was very into this thing of, of, of if you're meditating, you should be knowing why. Um, and I, it doesn't seem like you're touching on that. I, I was wondering what you think about it. This is um, a deep and involved conversation. So, um, the Buddha called what we're doing here Arya Pariyasana which in Pali means the noble quest. So it does sound like we're looking for something from that perspective. You go on a quest, you're looking for the Holy Grail. Um, On the other hand, there's this great book by a modern and very enlightened Hindu master, or someone at least working within more the Hindu, not the Buddhist, but the Hindu tradition, Papaji, And the name of the book is Call Off the Search. (laughs) 
Um, <clears throat> Rinzai Zen masters will um, tell you, perhaps, that there are exactly 1,750 koans, and you have to pass every single one of them, and each one is an attainment, and then you're enlightened. Soto Zen masters will say, you're already enlightened, just sit, and don't sit to get there, sit to express the fact you're already there. Um, The Catholic Church says that um, the beatific vision, if you want to attain it in this life, um, comes about through uh, a, a combination of effort and surrendering effort, grace. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Catholic Church, about a thousand years separated, somewhat based on the, con- on the controversy of how much role should be given to effort versus how much role should be given to giving up effort. The <clears throat> Protestant denominations completely separated from the Catholics when Martin Luther decided that meditation doesn't work. He was a failed monk, basically. And uh, he was an Augustinian monk, and he tried to meditate, and he noticed that he couldn't. We've noticed that also. But his response was very interesting. He says, well, the problem is because I'm trying. So I have to completely just rely on God's grace because I can't do this myself. And even the attempt to do it, okay, So why do I bring up all of these historical precedents? Clearly, there has been a lot of controversy as to the relative roles of having goals versus giving up goals. And clearly, deeply enlightened masters have come down strongly on one side or the other. What does that tell us? What that tells me is that there's something in this practice about bearing down and there's something in this practice about easing up. And there's something in this practice about, hey, you can do it. And there's another aspect of this practice that says let go of all, uh, let go of all intentions and goals. And that it is undeniable that this practice is a, a dialectical process that involves both. And one teacher will come down strongly on one side, one teacher might come down on another. Um, because they've had their own experience of the problems that come about if you try the other way of doing it. But then it's like hugely confusing to students. Um, so uh, that's one thing I would say about that issue. Um, yeah, go ahead. I want to say something more. Uh, I in my experience of sitting with different teachers, um, sometimes the goal is what people are talking about. Do you sit in order to get along with your in-laws better? Is that a good reason to do it? Do you, I, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I just think this has played a major role in um, my practice. You know? Yes. Um, I mean, I, I, is this okay to have that as a goal? You know, when you have things where you're, you're measuring things scientifically and then there are different things... I think a lot of what I feel is a, a lot of people when they're sitting, something gets better, you know? They get along with the people at work or, you know, they can not get upset about things so quickly. 
And that's good. I don't think that's bad at all. I think it's terrific. But is that okay to be sitting in order to do those things? Uh, imply, well, there's actually two sides to that question. The okay. first side is, I think I addressed, which mm-hmm. is, uh, some people would say you shouldn't have any goal at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. So there's that. But I think the question you're asking is a little different, yeah. which is, is it okay if that's your only goal? Yeah. as opposed to some other goals mm-hmm. that might be more spiritual or altruistic and so forth. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the question you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very interesting question. The way I like to address this is um, by talking about what in the Buddhist tradition is called upaya. Mm-hmm. Now, upaya is often translated as skillful means, but I think a much better uh, translation would be approach. Mm-hmm. How do you approach people? How do, how do you make this relevant to people? So usually, J. Random Public is not particularly interested in the notion of uh, gaining insight into the uh, impermanent suffering and uh, empty nature mm-hmm. of uh, self. That's not exactly relevant to the needs of Mm -hmm. the average person. But they might have physical pain, Mm -hmm. uh, or they might have um, an anger management issue, and Mm -hmm. you know, the things I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. They might want to improve their tennis game. Mm -hmm. Um, They might want to, whatever. Um, Well, guess what? Um, mindfulness practice can achieve that. Definitely. So what do we say? Do we say, well, um, yeah, mindfulness practice can achieve that, but I'm, I'm not going to teach you if that's all you're interested in because that's a very limited perspective. There, so, there are people who say that. That's right. I mean, if they come, they say, you know, you're not really doing this. You know, please go away. You know. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's... Yeah. That's East and West. There are people that say that. So that's one possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, another possibility is to say, absolutely, that's what we're going to do. We're going to help you exactly with what you want. Um, but uh, I'm going to also point out to you how you can use this for other stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay? Now, now what are you doing? You're not saying it's wrong just to want that right now. Mm-hmm. But you are also informing them that they're learning generic skills that have wider applications. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> by merely informing them, you are already transforming them. Because now there's, their interest may still just be <clears throat> in pain management or whatever for a while. But now they know that the very same techniques and the very same skills that they're learning for this can be applied to behavior changes or to being a more loving person, etc. They've been the the dots have been connected between the focus technique that they're doing for their pain and all aspects of human improvement. The dots have been connected um, conceptually. And then you just leave the rest of time. That's, that's, my, uh, that's my approach. Mm-hmm. Because 
sooner or later, people are going to want to start to apply this more broadly in their life. You think so? For sure? I, th- I, th- I think <laughs> no, so. No, really. I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's going to be a general tendency. Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, things are going to come up. Mm-hmm. Okay? And when they come up, if you know that you can apply this technique to it, mm-hmm. then that's going to, uh, that, that's going to foster that. Mm-hmm. So I would... I would uh, I would definitely myself personally come down very strongly on the notion of teaching this for absolutely secular goals to very secular people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're playing a numbers game here. It's a statistical forces that are important. If you average over large numbers of people and long periods of time, if people, number one, have these techniques, and number two, are continually reminded how they can be used broadly, mm-hmm. there's going to be a tendency over time in large numbers of people for them to be used broadly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. We have uh, something over here. So the question I asked previously that you wanted to bring to the group was if there's an arising of an emotion or a thought, do you choose to deconstruct it or you use the equanimity function? So how does choice come into choosing which approach? Yes. So the question is, okay, I'm focusing on the breath and all this other stuff is going on and it's pretty rich, <laughs> perhaps impactful. Um, should I background equanimize it and just keep coming back to the breath? Or should I turn my attention towards it and deconstruct it? Um, and um, I wonder if anybody could guess what I'm going to say, because I... <laughs> I get asked this question a lot, and if you've ever listened to me, you've probably heard me ask this, someone asked me this question. I wonder if anyone can guess what I'm going to say or remembers what I likely say under these circumstances. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yes to all of the above, but... Uh, uh, well, what I actually say is uh, it depends. And depends on what? It depends on what your focus technique is. There are many, many focus techniques available um, from the traditions, uh, the contemplative traditions of the world. Each focus technique has a well-defined range of experience that, it's, that it has you concentrate on, and then you ignore everything else. So um, if, if your teacher or the tradition you're working in says, we're going to just go the entire path to enlightenment on the breath, that's what we're doing. It's going to be all breath all the way. Um, 
then you background equanimize that stuff and you never actually turn your attention towards it. If that is your technique. And so one possibility is my technique is breath and breath only and I'm going to ride that all the way to nirvana. Uh, Not joking, by the way. Um, So that's one possibility. Another possibility is um, that your technique actually isn't the breath. Your technique is any and all sensory experience. Or your, so it's not limited to the breath. Or your technique is any and all body experience, but not limited to the breath. Or your technique is um, a technique that I call focus in, that, like I say, if you read my five ways to know yourself manual, it's described in there. Um, in that technique, your focus range is mental image, mental talk, and the emotional body, the core self. That's a very deconstructive technique. So in Sanskrit and Pali, there's this word gochara. And go means from gao, and gao sounds like cow, and that's not a coincidence. Uh, Chara means to go. So gochara is a pasture. It's the fenced area where the cow is allowed to go, but can't go any further. So gochara means your object, your focus range the things that are in, within your defined object of focus. Um, so the question, the answer to your question is it depends on what your gochara is. What, what, the other word for gochara, there's a really cool word, karmastana, kamatana in Pali. It means your workstation, your karmastana, <laughs> your karma stand, your, your workplace, Okay. So it means the same as gochara. It's like, what is my focus range? Whenever you sit down and do any technique, you want to be crystal clear. What is the range of sensory experience that you are attempting to be mindful of? And you constantly come back to that and you bring clarity and concentration and equanimity to that. And then there's everything else. And so the thoughts and emotions are everything else. One possibility is that you have only one technique and if it were to be the breath, then you would simply ignore all that other stuff for the duration, okay? Another possibility is that you have more than one technique. Or, so, for example, you, you like to do the breath, but you also have, know how to focus in and deconstruct then you can alternate. Alternate based on interest, opportunity, and necessity. Now, in my manual, I give you 29 techniques. Well, that's an awful lot, okay? Um, And I don't expect people to learn them all, but they actually make a coherent whole. Um, They represent an algorithm that loops and branches to optimize your experience. Depending on, depending on windows and walls as they come up, you actually change the technique to optimize. Now, the advantage of that is it's very powerful because it, you're, you're working with exactly what you need to work with. 
But the disadvantage is it's enormous. It can be com- complex because you have to make decisions. So the answer to your question is, if you only have the breath as your technique and all this other stuff comes up, then you ignore it. But you might want to have more than just the breath as your technique. And that would then give you the option to do what I would consider actually to be the more classic Vipassana vipassana practice. The more classic Vipassana practice is a broader deconstruction of the mind-body experience based on the five skandhas, the four foundations, the four great elements, or my system, the three subjective elements. Um, So... Is that enough of an answer to your question? Basically, the breath practice will either work, and now you know what I mean by work, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, there's a reason why. The, re- uh, the reason why um, uh, might be that the breath practice is only for you a concentration practice and is not developing in a strong way the clarity and equanimity components. If, well, we already talked about concentration, right? Your attention wanders, you bring it back, that's how it develops concentration. That total acceptance of all the other stuff happening in the background, that's your equanimity piece. And when we come back after the lunch break, I'm going to show you how to bring clarity into the breath practice. So the take-home message for this workshop, and it's the take-home message for every focus on breath workshop that I do. I just did one in L.A. last week. It was exactly the same take-home message, take-away message, which is the breath practice either works or it doesn't. Work means it produces one or a combination of the things I said, and it's acceleratingly so. If that's not the case, then there's a reason it's not working. One reason would be that it's only a concentration practice and there's not um, a, um, an explicit component of sensory clarity and equanimity. So it's not deconstructive enough to take you beyond time, space, self, and world. So... One solution, if it does, it's not working or it's not working fast enough, one solution is intentionally bring in the clarity and equanimity pieces so that you actually have a mindfulness of the breath as opposed to merely uh, a concentration or a calming practice based on the breath. That's one fix. The other fix is um, broaden the focus to something more like what's actually described in the Buddhist scriptures, which is uh, breaking the sense of the self down into its components so that you get insight into anicca, dukkha, anatta, and so forth. So you can go any... uh, Like I say, the right way to meditate, according to me, is the way that works. So uh, like it or not, there are options. Okay, but that's good because then everyone can find what works. So did that was that a sufficient? So once again, just to repeat, the, you know, what's the take-home message? Okay, so I like to define 
mindfulness as concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity working together. If there's going to be a cul-de-sac with the breath, it's probably because it's just a concentration practice and just uh, a calming practice. Um, and there's not enough clarity to, to gain, not enough sensory clarity that you gain liberating insights. And there's not enough taste of equanimity so that you can actually sense that blockages are being released. So one fix is, well, bring in the clarity so that you get the liberating insights and start to actually taste the sacrifice that you're making by letting go of everything other than the breath, which is essentially letting go of everything. So you bring in, in an intentional way, the clarity and the equanimity piece. And then that might be what needs to be done, and then you can ride the breath to nirvana. Alternatively, if that doesn't work or that's not of interest to you, then you broaden your focus to include other things that allow you to to get the insight and purification flavors, perhaps by deconstructing selfhood, which, as I say, is actually the core insight uh, in, uh, in, in the classic text. But you see, you can deconstruct the self in the world just on the tip of your nose. If you bring enough clarity, that sensation is going to, quote, break up into impermanence. Um, And then it's going to pull everything else with it. Back to the source. (laughs) Say what? Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, in our parts of the world, we say swaha. It means exactly the same thing. In, in San- swaha, you don't know that one. That's amen in, uh, in uh, Sanskrit. <laughs> or sadhu. Sadhu, sadhu, yeah. Okay, let's do it. Oh, not necessarily all of it, but whatever we can do in the next 20 minutes. Once again, take a moment to stretch up and settle in. And once again, bring your attention to the breath however you wish to focus on that. If the attention wanders, gently return. Each time you do so, you're exercising your concentration muscles. 
at the same time, allow for all the other stuff to expand and contract, to come and go in the background. All the other mind and body experiences, the sights and the sounds, that's all okay. But your selective attention is going towards the breath. But your equanimity encompasses everything. And with regards to that breath sensation, try to detect as much detail as you can. That's your sensory clarity piece.
once again. The moment when the bell rings. The moment of transition from formal practice to practice in life. There may be some actual taste of concentration. Heightened clarity or equanimity. If so, tune into that, ride on that, maintain that. There may be more tranquility or energy or overall well-being in your experience. Once again, tune into that if it's present. Okay, good work, folks. So, um, we're going to have about an hour and 15 minutes for lunch. I would strongly encourage you to eat light, um, because we're going to come back and uh, meditate on the breath instead of uh, a full stomach and sleepiness, hopefully. Um, And uh, so... uh, if you, some of you know how to maintain uh, a meditation technique in life as you're going about your activities, if you do, I'd encourage you to do so. If not, don't worry about it, but when we come back, we'll continue. And it will be the same thing. We'll have practice, time to discuss, and so forth. Um, let's see, is Matt around? I thought he... Huh? He pro- huh? Okay, I think he might have left to go fetch my lunch, but do you all know Matt Brensilver? Uh, Anyway, if you have questions about any of this stuff or where to find resources, uh, he can help you. Um, uh, He just knows all my techniques and and where everything is, so um, some of you asked where you can get stuff and so forth. Uh, That's a good resource. So, okay, good, to be continued. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>